on these three lives. Welcome, listeners, to the 46th chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the FISA and FOIA episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. FISA. FOIA. A couple of acronyms you've no doubt heard tossed around in political spheres. FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which is designed to regulate surveillance by intelligence agencies, specifically when related to foreign governments and their potential spies. FOIA, which stands for the Freedom of Information Act, is one of the few levers that American citizens can still pull to request unreleased government documents. After a brief introduction to FISA, we will jump on the line with reporter for the Young Turks and self-described FOIA nerd, Ken Klippenstein. Armed with deep acronym knowledge, we will then check in with the QAnon community and their obsession with D-class, or declassification, and the events resulting storm, which for them means mass arrests, military tribunals, and even the possible execution of deep state-aligned opponents. Speaking of ill weather, Jake will don his storytelling slippers and suck on a corncob pipe as he describes what will actually happen when the storm finally hits. Can't wait to find out who's going to get a wedgie. But before all that... QAnon News. First up, I have authors of QAnon book are fighting over how to profit from it. So uh, this was originally reported by Will Sommer at Daily Beast. And some of the biggest promoters of QAnon are in a civil war over how much money they should be wringing from their followers. The conflict is over the book QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, which peaked at number two on the Amazon bestseller list in March. Oh, how does it feel to lose to Hillary Clinton's book? What happened again? (laughs) The feud burst into the open earlier this month when uh, Dustin Nemos, a prolific conspiracy theorist and one of the book's co-authors, tweeted that fans should stop asking him when the QAnon book should come out as an audiobook. Nemos blamed Joe M., uh, another co-author, as the reason for the holdup, saying that Joe M. was afraid of making too much money from the book and being called a grifter, the ultimate insult for QAnon boosters. I cannot Stand believe. Stand-up guy, Joe yeah. M. Yeah, Joe Well, in many ways, an awful human being who uh, puts forth conspiracies that are yeah, very damaging. super damaging. But, but does not want to cons- profit. <laughs> yeah, he does not want to profit. He is a, a true believer yeah. of the movement, yeah. and for that, I respect him. He's like, listen, Angela Merkel is Hitler's daughter. Do not pay me for saying this over and over very loudly. Do not pay me. But these, the problem with QAnon followers is that there's so profoundly something missing with them that they want to throw money at people saying that kind of shit, which is incredible. Nemos told the Daily Beast in an email, quote, he became petty and hostile and paranoid and refused to allow us to do an audiobook, end quote. So uh, while the question of audiobook might seem arcane, it is a key issue for the QAnon community. <laughs> That's because, according to Nemos, so many elderly QAnon believers have poor eyesight and are unable to read the oh font in the regular book. God. Joe M's refusal to participate has also raised questions about whether the co-authors would be able to make a sequel, let alone profit from it. Second up, I have a big story. Q is missing. So uh, Q has not posted since the 26th of May. That is over four full weeks without a Q drop. Um, and uh, this is Q's longest absence uh, ever since uh, that you know, he first started posting. Uh, some in the QAnon community are despondent at Q's absence, while others reassure themselves that if Q is missing, it means that something big must be going on behind the scenes. You're a listener to this podcast. You would never love us enough 
that we could go away for four weeks, give you no podcast, and then you're still like, please come back. Yeah, right. <laughs> if we go away for four weeks, yeah. you would all cancel your Patreons. <laughs> like the filthy capitalist you, you think with is an exchange of goods, Q sells you literal fucking air. And you still throw the attention and the money their way. It's interesting. People have been asking me on Twitter, like, what this absence means. Does it does it mean that the QAnon followers are going to start abandoning Q or or if it means that it's going to make the movement grow or shrink? And the answer is I have no idea. Let's put uh, it this way. When you finally get that call from your granddaughter, you forget all about the months she was silent. And yeah. in, in the same way, Q followers. I mean, you know, Scientology, uh, you know, outlived L. Ron Hubbard. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it is really, it's really a question of like what exactly the post Q QAnon movement might look like, and who and who will take Q's place? Like, which from the community will yeah. step up? Yeah, uh, they, clearly people like Nemos who are willing to do it instead of Joe M. Joe M. will be the Trotsky of uh, QAnon, yeah. uh, very quickly swept aside because he believes in the actual thing that they're doing, and Dustin Nemos will take over as their Stalin uh, in a way. And he will be more effective at, you know, taking money and uh, pushing information out there. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, with Julian Field. On May 18, 1977, Senator Ted Kennedy introduced FISA alongside nine other senators. It was signed into law by President Carter on October 25th, 1978. FISA established regulatory procedures for intelligence agencies when it came to surveillance and information collection related to suspected espionage and terrorism. The act also created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC, with the purpose of receiving surveillance requests by intelligence and federal law enforcement agencies and then either approving them, denying them, or asking for modifications. But the FISC's effectiveness as a regulatory mechanism seems more than a little loose if you look at the stats. Since its inception, less than 1.35% of all requests have been denied. The first four denials came 25 years into the court's existence. They literally approved everything <laughs> for a quarter of a century. Uh, so yeah, the first denials occurred in 2003. That year, four requests total were denied. But after they were resubmitted, all were granted. So... <laughs> There were a few more denials popping up between 2006 and 2009. But in general, the bulk of them have occurred under Trump between 2016 and 2017. And when I say bulk, I mean that in 2017, 2.47% of all the requests submitted were denied by the court. By all accounts, FISC seems to be a rubber stamp court designed to carry out a form of regulatory theater, which, let's not forget, occurs in secrecy anyways, for the pleasure of the ruling body and their definition of national security. Uh, one important thing to note is that the FISA of yesteryear is not the FISA of today. Even though back then they literally rubber stamped shit for 25 years, it's now actually less good at regulating. Uh, multiple modifications to the act have occurred in the post 9-11 period. Uh, but before we go there, let's take a look at the reasons for FISA's creation in the first place. Government surveillance was nothing new when Richard Milhouse Nixon kicked off his presidency in 1969, but the newly inaugurated president's general paranoia and lack of scruples allowed for the expansion of the intelligence agency's surveillance activities, especially when it came to political organizations and activist groups that Nixon personally disliked. After the Watergate scandal, in which he was basically busted for trying to spy on the Democrats, Closed-door meetings between legislators and the Justice Department birthed FISA as a mechanism to provide judicial and congressional oversight while maintaining super badass awesome secrecy. 
So after 9-11, an already out-of-control intelligence community was given permission by the Bush government to expand warrantless domestic wiretapping. This was nothing new. Between 1945 and the early 70s, as part of Operation Shamrock, telecom companies shared traffic with the NSA constantly. In fact, the 70s were a turbulent era for the intelligence community due to a series of Senate hearings, including the infamous Church Committee, which revealed CIA's media-friendly Operation Mockingbird, alongside the United States' alleged attempts to assassinate multiple foreign leaders, most of them obviously aligned with the left. Fear of communism, an expansion of domestic surveillance, and a series of embarrassing reveals suddenly thrust these issues into the public eye. But as we examined, the pushback against those government activities was relatively limp-wristed. I mean, they put this into place and then it just approved stuff. Most of the measures were passed for purely political reasons. A large part of the political ruling class did not appreciate how Nixon weaponized the intelligence agencies against his political opponents. So it seems like opposition to the deep state seemed quite selective and self-serving, even for members of the supposedly left-leaning party. Fast forward to the post-9-11 period under Bush, and the FISC is suddenly processing almost double the volume of surveillance requests, with record highs between 2005 and 2008. A series of amendments and modifications occurred in the 2000s, including the Patriot Act in 2001, the Terrorist Surveillance Act of 2006, the Protect America Act of 2007, and the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. These amendments loosened regulations and oversight over time and laid the groundwork for PRISM, the massive surveillance operation exposed by Edward Snowden in 2013. PRISM, of course, continues to be a dope collab between the intelligence agencies and almost every major tech company. Now, I could go deeper into FISA, and perhaps we will at some point, but I think the general trend here is clear. FISA led to the formation of FISC, which is essentially a rubber stamp court. Even as a rubber stamp court, the government has, between the 70s and now, steadily loosened its grasp to allow for more surveillance with less oversight. It has also failed to prevent the rise of extreme punishment for any whistleblower willing to expose government malfeasance. And you'll hear a bit more about that uh, in our interview with uh, Ken Klippenstein about how people now uh, are very much more reticent to become sources, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, blowing the whistle on surveillance. What, what blows me away about this entire thing is that essentially, um, you know, an operation that, like we mentioned, for 25 years just to prove stuff it, the government was so greedy and lazy in the way that they wanted to just openly spy on whoever they wanted that they were like, this is inconvenient. I don't even want to have to submit for one of these. And meanwhile, they still submitted for like twice the volume they did before, but they were also like, man, you know, I don't want to file this shit every fucking time. This is like if you ask the police department if they, if they wanted to file reports. It's like, no, we don't want to file reports. We want to go out there, do whatever the fuck we want, and then you leave us the fuck alone about the aftermath. Uh, but essentially, like, this was on a, a kind of government level. And you'd think, like, okay, the Democrats tried to push for this, but they didn't. They tried to push for it once they were embarrassed and once they realized they were getting spied on. It had gotten yeah. so far out of control that they were getting spied on. Interview with Ken Klippenstein. Ken is a senior investigative reporter for the Young Turks. He recently earned a position on the FBI's Vexum Filer list for his high volume of requests filed through the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, guys. Great to be on. Could you kick off by just explaining uh, broadly what FOIA is for our listeners? Yeah, so FOIA stands for FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Um, this was passed 
uh, kind of after the 60s anti-war movement, it's a, I think it's the culmination of a lot of tendencies within the country towards more transparency and um, really the freedom of speech movement. I think there's way too much emphasis on what did this politician you know, back, what did this politician pass, and not enough on social movements. And there was enormous pressure, obviously emanating out of Berkeley, but um, you know, straight in the mainstream of the country um, for this idea that you know, the information our taxes pay to generate uh, government documents, uh, you know, we paid for them, they belong to us, uh, that should be free to the extent that they that they can. Um, of course, you don't want to have the nuclear codes out there, but um, there's quite a lot that I think we should have out there. That's really what um, the act is and sort of what the ideology behind it was. So this is kind of like if the public library had you yell the names of books through a slit and then maybe they'll give them out to you through the through that slit? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I use it a lot, so I'm glad I, we have it. But I wish it was um, better implemented. I always say we don't have, we don't really have a Freedom of Information Act. Uh, sort of a misnomer. We have a Freedom of Documents Act or a Freedom of Records Act. And if you happen to know the name of the document, the specific document that you want, then you might be able to get it. But if you don't know the name of that, you can't get it. So um, the way case law has established it, and I think it's written in the law itself too. But um, certainly, case law has established that. The government doesn't actually have to do any research. They just have to immediately produce some very narrowly defined specific thing. And that's unfortunate because, you know, an ordinary person who might want to know something, they're not going to have time to know, you know, what subcomponent of the um, Department of Defense is going to have some specific record that might provide insight into the question that they have. So I think a better implementation of it would be to have that you could ask a more open-ended question and then they could conduct some research. Um, I don't think it'd be enormously hard, but unfortunately we don't have that yet. And so how was uh, FOIA originally conceived and, and for what reasons? It was a reaction to, I think, in part, distrust of government, you know, coming from, you know, Vietnam and Korea and, you know, all these lies that have been happening, but also just a sort of libertarian streak um, in the country towards, uh, you know, why should the government be allowed to conduct all this stuff in secret? Shouldn't we, at least in principle, um, have access to what they're up to. Um, and that was sort of the argument made. I think it was a strong free speech argument. And it was a much different character than 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 the way it's discussed now, which is the favorite term of the far right. Yeah, I think it was just a general desire for more transparency um, coming out of uh, distrust of all these crazy things that have been happening. And so how did you end up uh, becoming one of the top 10 FOIA requesters in the country? Can you give us some background on yourself? I have some kind of brain disease where I have to send these things out constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just, I see something, I'm like, oh man, I wonder what's, what's in there. It's just, to me, it's sort of like fishing. It's like you put some line out, you don't know what you're going to get, and it's kind of fun. Um, I just love the title, Vexum. It was Vexum Requester, and that just is such a Monty Burns word, Vexum. Like who has said <laughs> yeah. who has said that since like World War One? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and this is the FBI, like they named that list that way? Oh yeah, that's the actual name. Um it's not in the like one page that I posted, but if you go through the records, every year they have these things that they distribute internally. And another funny term they have they call them HVT, which they say stands for high volume something, but what's funny is in the uh, national security intelligence world, HVT means high value target that like a drone takes out. So nice. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's like a kind of dark joke or if it's just a coincidence. But I always thought that was funny too. Sir, we're but, putting you on the pesky wabbits list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so so okay, so you have uh, filed tons of FOIA requests as you mentioned. Uh, which gave you the most surprising results? I would say when I asked for the gifts that President Trump had received from the government of Saudi Arabia, uh, you'll recall that was his first foreign visit, which was a huge departure for, I think, 
don't think there was ever a president that didn't go to either, you know, a neighboring country, Mexico or Canada. So I thought that was sort of weird. So I thought, I wonder what they're, because I just imagine what kind of gifts they're lavishing on them, because this is a, you know, extraordinarily wealthy society and not just wealth, but like a very liquid kind. And the way they conduct their foreign policy, I think is, I think it's kind of legalized bribery. They give tons of money to these think tanks in different countries to try to influence um, their policy in the Middle East. So I was, you know, to me, it just was kind of like a red flag, like, oh, man, I wonder what they're giving them. So then I get it back, and the list was hilarious. It was, like, paintings of, like, Saudi women and, like, um, like gold. Yeah, like, gold coin, <laughs> gold coins and, like, some kind of, like, silver dagger, like, all this insane stuff. It was really funny. They were like, if you if you type the proper code on the dagger, it unlocks, and a genie <laughs> comes out of it. Yeah, it's very Indiana Jones. Yeah. It was like, I, I mean, I knew it was going to be, you know, crazy, but I didn't think it was going to be like James Bond villain kind of stuff. And that's what it was. 100 <laughs> million in McDonald's gift certificates. <laughs> <laughs> they really knew to their credit, they knew how to play this guy. He got in and I think they had like a billboard of just of his face, like right next to the hotel that he was staying at. Oh and that's my like, God. credit where credit's due, man. That's like, yeah. I think, I think those European countries, they try to be a little bit more so, you know, tactful about it, and that's yeah. not that's not this guy. You know, no, no, no. They forget. Europe forgets that he does not have object permanence. So if, if you take his face away for a moment, he's like, where did it go? Right. Where did it, where did the face go? Who am yeah. I? Um. So that's interesting. And then, so in an era where a lot of government atrocities are front page news, but carry no consequences at all, and I'm thinking particularly of the reports coming out on ICE and what's happening in the detention centers. What does it even mean to expose malfeasance? It's tougher now because there's um. You know, you're kind of seeing liberals try to be like, oh, Trump said this, but he got this wrong. And all the old rules don't really apply where you kind of like prove that someone is being hypocritical or something like no one gives a shit anymore. Um, I don't think it's impossible to get people to care about things, but um, it, it's it's different now. How to describe it exactly? I mean, this is a huge operative question as a journalist is like, what is what is going to get people to actually care and want to like want to like try to do something. And, and, um, I guess for me, I've always tried to focus on the not obvious stuff. I haven't done a whole lot on Russia, not that that's not a story, but just cause there was an such an enormous amount of focus on it. I always try to focus on other stuff. Like before Khashoggi, I was doing Saudi Arabia for a while. Um, and it, just cause I thought there was tons of stuff there. I'm not trying to be like, you know, like the hipster thing, like, Oh, I don't want to do the regular. It's just like, that seemed like another um, nexus of corruption that that had gotten kind of overlooked. And um, like the example I gave you before, I found a lot of other crazy stuff. And that's just because it unfortunately hadn't really been looked at. I would recommend anyone, any other journalist to try just try some a different angle because the stuff that's being tried like isn't really working very well, I feel like. I mean, he ran saying the Saudis did 9-11 and then the next minute he's like doing the sword dance with them. Like there's this echo chamber in the media where once something becomes a story, then everyone dogpiles on it. And I'm not even saying... Obviously, Russia's a story, but like, or whatever else kind of thing. But like, at a certain point, it just kind of, it's diminishing returns, I feel like. People get exhausted of seeing the same information. Over yeah, there. exactly. And that, and that right. causes it to become less potent. So exactly. You actually had the spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security demand that you stop soliciting tips about him on Twitter. <laughs> so can you explain how that came about? Yeah. Um, someone had reached out to me with a... Um, pretty scandalous story about him that I uh, didn't end up writing because I wasn't able to find corroborating stuff. But I think the person, without getting the specifics, the person is credible. Um, so I started asking for tips about this kind of salacious thing I'd been told. And then as soon as that happened, I had reported on, uh, you know, ICE for a while and DHS. And then I get a phone call 
I'm just at a coffee shop. It's a, you know, Washington number. I, so I just don't think much of it because I often get calls from Washington numbers. And hello. he's like, he's like, where are you hearing this from? Who's telling you this? Who are your sources? And I'm like, what? And I was like, I can't tell you that. And then he was just sounded like really deflated after that. And it was funny because it was like, <laughs> why would I, why would I ever tell him? And then, and so and then I was asking who it is. And he's like, this is Tyler Holton. And I was just like shocked that he would not just try to go send an email or like, it, you know what I mean? Like, and then I was wondering, like, has that ever worked for him where he asks for someone's sources? Because it's yeah. kind of scary to think that <laughs> that he thought it would work. It's weird that um, he's but, not even smart enough to do the Trump thing of changing your voice and claiming that you're like a reporter or something. John Barron. I think that's what it was. Yeah, John Barron. John Barron. Yeah, he had to be like, John George Royal Barron Rich, <laughs> friendly and handsome and tall friendly, is my full name. Huge penis. I was just thinking of George Glass. <laughs> <laughs> Q actually once referenced uh, FOIA in a Q drop regarding the claims that Q, if it was real, would violate the Hatch Act. And uh, here's what Q said. Why did select senior members of the D-Party 6 send a letter to Don McCann in early October outlining Hatch Act violations re-Q? FOIA works in this situation. Q. So my question is that if senior members of the Democratic Party did in fact send a letter to Don McGahn about QAnon, would that be something that you could uncover uh, via FOIA? That's what's so funny about it is because you didn't even like bother to Google a thing. It's like you can't – FOIA does not apply to Congress. Um, oh. So you can't even – it's explicitly exempt. So under no circumstances would you be able to get that. This is actually like <laughs> – uh, if you want to really get on my nerves is tell me to FOIA Trump because you can't FOIA the executive office of the president. Parts of the White House are accessible to FOIA, but most of it is not. Mm. Um, so my big – pet peeve is like always being told to FOIA Trump's DMs or something like that, or somebody FOIA Congress, because that's probably the two most common things I get that you just literally cannot under any circumstances do. Uh, Ken, so yeah, not a not a FOIA expert, it sounds like. Uh, Ken, are, are you are you suggesting that um, this uh, crack team of uh, non investigators uh, who have in- uncovered, you know, the next uh, great American scandal, are you saying that they could just, you know, apply to actually see this information and it's like they have all the resources like at their fingertips to like yeah. do exactly what you do and no and but they're trying to check out a book at the library but they're using their subway card yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know what it, it almost reminds me it's like i was picturing they're kind of like the mirror image of the crescent scenes where they like i picture them being like foying the white house for all DMs between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, including the word collusion. (laughs) And this is like the reverse of that, but for Q. Well, speaking of lack of experience, I think Travis has FOIA'd in the past. He's a FOIA-er. I got got a question because I I have filed exactly one FOIA request in my life and uh, it didn't go quite uh, very well. So uh, I was wondering if you had any tips. So what I did is that I requested, um, I sent a request to the Secret Service for all of the records pertaining to QAnon. And the, the reason I did this is because it was being reported that the Secret Service was telling people at Trump rallies to remove their Q shirts before they entered the venue. So I figured, well, okay, there might have, there has to be some sort of there has to be <laughs> That's so awesome. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. So of course there there has to be some sort of internal documents within the Secret Service to be like, oh, if you see anyone with a QAnon shirt, tell them to like not not do it or something. Um, and the response I got back was that they couldn't comply with the FOIA request because quote disclosure could reasonably be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings. 
end quote. And so what does that mean? And uh, do you have any advice that I could uh, get a better result next time? Um, I think that's a great idea for a FOIA. I would say this is probably the most common. There's unfortunately a bit of a learning curve for the reasons that I was describing before, which is that they don't really do any, they don't come to you in good faith and try to help you find, they're like, all right, so this guy wants to double Q. So what kind of places will we have that in? They don't do that. They're just going to say, uh, what's interesting is that you actually got, usually I would get an overbroad response from that because you would have to say like, you have to say what kind of records you have to say, like, um, I don't know, like field intelligence cables from the secret services office here or something like that, you know, like very, very, very specific. Okay. Um, how, however, it's interesting that they, that they basically acknowledged that it would interfere with ongoing proceedings. Um, they love to abuse that one, by the way, because so, uh, you know, perhaps they have some stuff on cue that there is an ongoing proceeding, but I bet you they have a hell of a lot of stuff on cue that isn't. And then they like to just lump them together and be like, well, some of that's there. So we'll just tell them it's all mm. what you, I would recommend you appeal that that's actually a really interesting response that you got to it. Um, you, you might be a natural. My first responses were just too broad. Fuck you. <laughs> I never <laughs> I didn't get to the, I didn't get to the law enforcement ones until a little while later. So that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, try, appeal, try appealing it and say that you're just asking for the ones that are not um, involved in law ongoing law enforcement stuff. Ooh. Oh, nice. Good All tip. Right. I'm going to give that a try. So another acronym that we have been exploring on this episode is FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Is there a connection with FOIA and what have your experiences uh, with FISA and uh, surrounding culture been like? Um, I think they're a little different. Um, you're not going to have much luck in FOIA. The kind of like a big weakness of FOIA is um, they have these exemptions for it. And one of them is like, if anything is, um, uh, you know, endangers the national security of the United States, the executive can just assert, um, you know, that and, and say, we're not going to give it to you. And that's probably another one of the most abused ones. Uh, and whenever it goes to court, even you have a federal judge and then you have the Justice Department on one side and you have maybe a journalist or an activist or, a, you know, nonprofit on the other side. And like, this is my kind of paraphrasing, but it's like often how it'll go is the Justice Department will be like, do you want to be responsible for the next 9-11? And then you have this like judge who went to some fancy college, like Ivy League school, it's like quivering. He's like, oh my God, no, I don't. And, you know, it's like very well socialized and disciplined and everything. And also they generally as an institution show deference to the federal government. So, you know, it's some kind of country club guy, like look at this other, you know, dudes in suits and he's kind of like, wow, that's pretty scary. I don't want to, you know cause some terror attack or something. And so, um, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but it's not far from the truth. So anytime something is like, uh, there's actually a lot of litigation trying to get stuff on even just, um, what's it called? Electronic surveillance to find out like what, what they're doing that with. And then they'll assert, you know, that's going to hurt national security because we need to be able to keep this stuff secret. So FISA stuff, um, the FISA courts, they don't actually, um, issue that many FISA warrants. Um, if you look at, there's definitely been an increase since 9-11, um, a significant increase, but it's only, I think it's only like maybe like a couple hundred every year. Um, so these are going to be, I would guess, like, you know, like Chinese espionage or Russian espionage or whatever. Because um, once you issue a FISA warrant, I mean, you can pretty much get everything. It's crazy what they can get. It's like the full force of the, you know, national security state, just hoofering up everything. But um, I guess the link with, FOIA, I've never had much luck getting anything on that. And there's ongoing litigation, people fighting very hard to get stuff on it. And they do get some stuff, but it's pretty difficult. Yeah, so FISA is kind of by definition a closed loop court. Yeah, they have secret courts. 
yeah. the court's operating secret, you know? Like, so, I mean, I hope it's only 100 cases. We don't know for sure. How invasive FISA warrants are is insane. Uh, you know, I know someone in the FBI was explaining to me when they issue these things. This person told me that there's no footprint. There's no way you could know. And they just get everything. Because, and I say it's very, like, we don't do much human intelligence anymore, but we've gotten very good at signals intelligence. Like, in, insanely good. And we have all these tools now to just look through it. I mean, you put so much information on into Google and into, um, you know, all the social stuff that they just have so much. And then also like, um, pinging cell towers, for instance, like if I meet with a source who is in, um, the intelligence community, I don't bring my phone with me because they could very, very easily, it's like trivial for them to piece together, um, based on the GPS coordinates from your phone and the other persons that you met. So yeah, FISA is kind of scary to me, to be honest. I'm not saying we don't need some kind of thing for counterintelligence against, you know, foreign actors and things. But like, it, we should be very careful with it, I think. Yeah, it seems like uh, less requests are currently being processed by FISA than during its peak in the post 9-11 years. But there's also been obviously modifications to FISA. So I mean, in my mind, and this is complete layperson, you would, you, I would posit like, you know, the fact that um, you don't have to apply for some of this stuff anymore, basically, you just get to do it anyways. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, over time, the requests have also been more blanket requests. So if you're dealing with something like Prism, you know, getting access once would be enough. It's not like you have to rewire a second person's house. Right. What else is scary about them? So you've got the secret courts doing all this stuff in secret that we don't know. And then in addition to that, it's like basically a rubber staping institution. So if you look at how many requests they get to issue a FISA warrant, it's almost 100%. Like yeah. if you go through the years, it's like zero is like the number of the number of requests that were denied by the FISA court, which presumably, you know, a judge going over this, I mean, unless these are just angelic institutions, even if they're good and they're following all the rules, like they're going to make a mistake eventually, mm -hmm. right? Like I would think, but just year by year, zero, 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 zero. They never don't give them a FISA. Uh, I mean, on a couple of years, there may be like, and actually it looks like it's increased quite a bit under Trump. Yeah. It seems like they have rejected a few FISA requests mm -hmm. under the Trump administration, which is sort of scary. They had 30, wonder, like, 34 rejections in 2016, 34 yeah. rejections in 2017. But even then, that amounts to less than like, I think, 2.5 or 2.6% of all the requests. Wow. And that's that's the peak refusals season. Exactly. And you have to imagine how bad those requests are if they're finally being rejected because they never got rejected under Obama or Bush. I mean, barely. And even you know, if they're rejected, they get modified, resubmitted and then approved. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very scary. And nobody knows about it. No one seems to. It's kind of technical. So it's hard to explain. But yeah, that's not good. I mean, what kind of how serious is the court if they just sign off on everything? They've gotten us to the place where where people are actively defending it and being like, no, it's, it's this is good. Like I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't mind that they're looking into every you know every aspect of my life. Yeah, I was trying to explain to those people. It's like, well, do you read the news? And they're like, yes. And it's like, so the quality of the news that you're going to get is going to like depend on how scared people are that they're going to get targeted. Like I can tell you, people don't want to talk as much as they used to. Um, and I'm not even that fucking old. It, you yeah. know, I've noticed a change in the. Like, if you talk to older reporters who covered national security before, like, 9-11, they were just like, oh, my God. Every, it was night and day. People, there were so many more people willing to talk. And, like, why the fuck? And, you know, I honestly, I get it. Like, um, I mean, if they can collect this stuff, like, why would you want to? I mean, they, the Obama administration subpoenaed the Associated Press's um, phone calls in a super broad subpoena and just gets everyone's metadata. Like, I talked to this person then, and it's like, well, people don't want to get don't want to risk it at that point, you know, and obviously Trump is probably gonna be much, probably gonna be even worse. So 
yeah, it's a scary trajectory. And I hope I'm glad you guys asked the question because that's I think it's an important everyone reads the news or follows it to some extent. So I think they care about the quality of news. <laughs> There's a lot of criticism. Of news is so bad, which like it is. But like part of that is like it's just it's become a lot harder to for us to like get things. And that's just going to lead to this more superficial kind of stuff that we see. And so what are the chances that you as a Vexum filer uh, <laughs> are not being constantly monitored? I don't know. You know, I draw a lot of hope from the fact that the intelligence community is extremely incompetent, insanely incompetent. <laughs> it's not like like I grew up on the Jason Bourne movies. And I'll tell you someone I was talking to from who works. Oh, I got to be vague who works counterintelligence in the intelligence community. Okay. And, uh, you know, you grew up watching Jason Bourne and they're zooming in on all these cameras. They see all this stuff. And I talked to this guy. He's like, and the real thing, here's how, here's, a, here's our day. It works. Look, I show up. Printer's broken. That's not working. Computer's like running on some <laughs> software from like 15 years ago. It's like, can't read the monitor. It's like fucked up. Like, this is this doesn't work. That doesn't work. I mean, this is just one person in one agency, but I think that's that. I think that extends across the board. I think it's just a big mess. Certain things are funded extravagantly. Critical things are way underfunded. Yeah. You know, so I don't I don't worry about it too much. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I should. <laughs> what do you What do you guys think? I don't know. They got the Krasensteins. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they put. Po- you know, they post right. a very big threat. Uh, Julian, let's be <laughs> let's be realistic here. Uh, the Krasensteins were a, a national security threat uh, to uh, in a nonpartisan way. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> he got too close to the truth, man, and they had to take him out. <laughs> we desperately want anyone to be listening to us, and I mean. To the podcast in general, you know, just anybody to be a member of the audience. And so if the CIA could join us eventually, yeah, that would be a pleasure. Well, I mean, all the QAnon guys think that they already do. I mean, they, they yeah. assume that we are a wing of the uh, intelligence community and are, and are paid <laughs> and are paid handsomely for our for our due, or due diligence. Yeah, that's the thing. They're on that born identity stuff, too. Oh, yeah. they, like, come on, talk yeah. to anyone. You can just talk to someone retired. They burst out, dude, nothing works. We don't do human intelligence anymore. We barely have any assets. Everything has become like Facebook. It's all big data. Right. It's all these, you know, it's all these grifters from Silicon Valley being like, yo, if you buy my software, you will, ha- you can lay off like all these people and you won't have to have anyone doing anything. And then a lot of these contracts end up going through and then they have these like very sophisticated you know, algorithmic approaches and stuff. And it turns out there's not enough humans to sift through any of it. So it's just a bunch of junk. And you, you know what I mean? Like say you get everything from some kind of, you don't know what's what or what to look at that's relevant. So I I would say, I mean, as a very general picture, that's like the direction that the um, U S intelligence community has gone. Well, bless them. Um, Moving on to a slightly uh, lighter note. uh, What is your favorite conspiracy theory? They used to be so um, charming and, and kind of like, um, uh, frivolous, like the little, like some like the Roswell stuff. It was like these fun little alien things, like you could tell with a flashlight in your face at the campfire with your friends. And now it's gotten so dire. It's like got all this white genocide stuff mixed in, and it's yeah. like very depressing. Yeah. You know, I used to enjoy that stuff when I was you like you you had all those shows like X Files and all that stuff. It was kind of this fun thing that people kind of watched tongue in cheek. Oh, I know. Mothman. It's got to be Mothman. Oh hell yeah, yes! That good. that movie kind of fucked me up. To be honest, it was it was uh, it was very well done. Yeah, right. That's good. That's like I like that sort of like that folklore stuff. That's like super yeah. local. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what? I was listening to my my wife really likes Street Fight. 
um, and they were listening. She was listening to one episode, and they had one about a. There's all these little their lore in like small towns. It doesn't really get out into the because a lot of it's word of mouth. And there was one that was in a newspaper where some cop in some small town in North Ohio, they had some lore about Frogman or something. It was like some kind of biped frog, which is hilarious because it's like, what? Like why would an evolution? Why would an amphibian be biped? That like doesn't make any sense. You know, like. <laughs> Like, it doesn't seem like it'd be beneficial to them. Yeah. Anyways, so um, some cop thought he saw one, saw something in shadows, and shot at it. And something about that is so funny to me because it's like you see this, like, cryptid, this, like, obscure offshoot from, like, some animal line that – and it's maybe the only one in the world. And your first reaction is, I got to kill it. Like, wouldn't you yeah. – if you saw some, like – like let's say you saw a triceratops in some island or something you'd be like whoa that's cool like let's take photo like i don't think my first response would be to try to kill it but according to the news article which is in the local paper the cop just like unloaded at this at the shadow which probably was some person or something oh my God. yeah he's like i've been hearing stories about this monster for decades and he was like nah. he was like there it is i gotta take it down He's like, oh, I'm in these uh, frog people neighborhoods and they're reproducing like animals here. And <laughs> Yeah, that's what it is. It's white genocide. The yeah. frogs are going to replace us. We, the yeah. frogs will not replace us. Yeah, it's I mean, it's all that shit at the very bottom at the very yeah. bottom of every conspiracy theory. Now, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's just like you peel back enough layers of the onion. You're like, oh, white genocide, anti-Semitism, <sighs> like so oh, depressing. Yeah, it used to be so much fun. Yeah. Speaking of conspiracy theories, people bust your balls for being the third Krasenstein brother. Uh, people so, don't do that. I never well, heard that before. Well, some people in the intelligence community hear that that's <laughs> happening in your comments every day by randos making it uncomfortable because they don't they're not they don't know you. They're not in on the joke, but it doesn't matter. They're hammering it even harder than anybody else. But how did this start? Who who started this? Because I saw it. It was on the, the Young Turks, like, sit down, like, Chank bringing it up on the screen and shit. Like, this has gotten completely out of fucking hand. It's At this point, it's mainstream news coverage uh, of this conspiracy theory. Who started this shit? I think it was two things. If I was to point to one person, Jordan Yule, that fucker, <laughs> he's so good at just birthing these memes. And out of nothing, he just created this huge. So he's probably like the. But the thing is, though. He accelerated it, but the thing was already there, which was that it was all of these kind of like nice resistancy kind of like wine mom types that would be small accounts <laughs> that would be that genuinely thought it. That was the that was where it all came from. Like oh. initially, he fast tracked that, but initially people genuinely thought like people that aren't don't follow things closely enough and just kind of you know those studies they do. If if someone sees a few letters, their your brain fills it in. You don't actually read the yeah, entire yeah. part of each word. So I think they just saw. K and then Stein at the end, and then it was you know I don't, I'm critical of Trump, and so if you don't really follow things very closely, then it's like oh it's one of those guys I always see everywhere. Yeah, and this happened constantly. There were so many. It's not it wasn't like no one like high up in media thought that because they follow these things closely enough to know that that our accounts are different. But like if you're just a casual person, that happened constantly, like all the time. I would get. And it was actually like – I think it was funny, but it was also a serious problem because I would get a story. Someone would be like, this is a really interesting story, but how do I know you're credible? Because I saw you say this stuff before that Mueller was going to arrest <laughs> Trump and it didn't happen. That happened all the time. So oh it was God. a joke, but it was also like a real phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. So you and Jack got together and you figured out how to get rid of these you know, weird mutant brothers of yours to, to stop ruining your career. It wasn't the worst thing. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I feel bad for anyone who gets kicked off Twitter because I that would suck if if that happened to me. Uh, I understand the addiction, but I don't get mistaken as much anymore. And mm. I don't know, things are just getting better. Things are getting better and better. Yeah, you are the one remaining uh, K Steen uh, prominence on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a friend of mine said, posting super dumb. Three brothers enter, one leaves. <laughs> <laughs> We, uh, we, we nonetheless think you deserve a pulpit from which to defend yourself from frenemies of the show, Jordan Yule and Jared Holt, who continuously push this conspiracy theory. What we, here's your, it's your time. It's your place. What would you like to say to them? My message to them is I won and they lost because the brothers are irrelevant. They're gone. So, so bear, bear that in mind next time you decide to create a meme. Um, I'll, you know, I'll win in the end. <laughs> any meme yeah. you're gonna win it doesn't matter if it's about you or not if you create a meme ken will win eventually um well before uh before we we let you go is there anything you'd like to plug ken um just check out my twitter that's where i post most of my stuff um and oh one other thing add me on linkedin it's too boring to go into to explain why but that helps me um so just add me on there i'll add you back yeah okay we will do that oh uh, yeah you heard it here you can have a professional connection to ken ken krasenstein <laughs> uh but if you want to send him messages you're gonna have to opt for the professional tier uh at 19.95 a month yeah dude i have to make a little bit of money right yeah i mean i got i have a dog to feed you know so yeah. i mean this is just cost of doing business and if you give it to me the overhead is going to be smaller than anything else mm -hmm. you're going to give it to so why not yeah well i mean to be honest all of our listeners they don't have linkedin they, they run like illegal dog fights uh, a few of them make masks for Lucha Libre. Like they're not, you know, they're not the kinds of people that use that, but uh, maybe they can sign up and you can have lots of friends with one connection. Hell yeah, man. Let's do it. Well, so, so your, your uh, Twitter is at uh, Ken Klippenstein, right? That's the, yep. uh, that's right. K-E-N-K-L-I-P-P-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. -E -E well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Ken. Hey, thanks for having me. D-Class with Travis View. The President of the United States wields many mind-bending powers within the federal government. And among those powers is the power to declassify any classified information he wants, any time he wants, through any process he wants, for any reason he wants, or no reason at all. To justify the President's broad declassification power, scholars typically cite the 1988 Supreme Court case Department of the Navy versus Egan. Oh, poor Egan. <laughs> yeah, already got the whole Navy against it. Here's what that majority opinion said. The president, after all, is the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. His authority to classify and control access to information bearing on national security and to determine whether an individual is sufficiently trustworthy to occupy a position in the executive branch that will give that person access to such information flows primarily from the constitutional investment of power in the president and exists quite apart from any explicit congressional grant. Now, that is a fucking garbage sentence. Yeah, Terrible Jesus grammar. Christ. Holy fucking shit. That means that the president can set their own personal classification procedures for the rest of the executive branch via executive order. You know, interestingly, though, the Trump administration still operates under Obama's 2009 classification executive order. You think if the classification is such a big deal to Trump, he wouldn't like operating under the rules that Obama set. But uh, I guess it's fine with them. Mm hmm. So uh, since Trump has the power to reveal all of these government secrets, if he so chooses, then he has the power to reveal just how corrupt the deep state is. But interestingly, he hasn't done it yet. Um, mm -hmm. However, QAnon people believe he will in the new f near future, and this will happen in an event that QAnon people called the D-Class, or just D-Class. 
In the D-Class, Trump will give the order to make public a bunch of explosive, top-secret documents, and then us blue-pilled normies will finally realize how wrong we were the whole time. But there's one declassification in particular they believe will really stick it to the deep state, and that is the declassification of documents related to the surveillance of Carter Page through a FISA warrant. Carter Page, if you'll recall, is a former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump during his campaign who resigned from that position in September of 2016. The next month, in October 2016, the FBI obtained uh, from the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court a warrant to surveil Page's communications and read his saved emails. The FBI wanted to keep tabs on Page because they believed that he was subject of targeted recruitment by the Russian government. A FISA warrant targeting uh, an American must be renewed every 90 days. Page's application was renewed on three separate occasions by three different FISA court judges. Despite all of that attention, the Mueller report eventually declared that the investigation did not establish that Page coordinated with the Russian government in his efforts to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. I mean, and this is one of those things where I think that they uh, they kind of do bring up a legitimate point. Like if a you know, FISA court can like surveil you for like a year and then and then at the end of the day, they got nothing on you. <laughs> what the hell was the point of all of that? I think yeah. that's most surveillance. Though. Yeah. yeah. The basic allegation in QAnon world and more broadly in the Spygate conspiracy theory is that corrupt people in the FBI presented fraudulent evidence to the FISA court to obtain that warrant as part of a plot to derail or possibly frame the Trump campaign. In QAnon world, they believe that the the D-class of the FISA documents will be an earth-shaking event. Here's what a July 28, 2018 Q-drop says. D-class by POTUS. Key parts that factually demonstrate the dirty, fake dossier was used as primary source to secure highest level of intel spying on primary Republican opponent, plus post-election intel assets for Dom spying on the President of the United States for the Office of the Presidency of the United States of America, all caps. Holy (laughs) shit, we talk about bad writing, but this has a parentheses within a parentheses. Oh boy, all caps. Yeah, you went a little nuts when talking about the FISA. Just, just weird note, weird punctuation, run-on sentence, all caps. And uh, here's what Q had to say about D-Class in September 10th, 2018, Q-Drop. D-Class of FISA will initiate the resignation slash recusal and or removal of Rod Rosenstein. D-Class of FISA will initiate the awareness that all signers will be currently under investigation. Declassifiza will factually demonstrate without argument that the U.S. government under Hussein knowingly presented false evidence to Fisk in an effort to obtain legal U.S. intelligence umbrella surveillance of POTUS ident target for the sole purpose of influencing the 2016 election of the presidency, not Russia, but Hussein slash HRC dash projection plus safeguard against possible loss of power firewalls. FISA full brings down the house, White House. <laughs> Q. Obviously, there are a lot of things wrong there. Uh, first of all, Rod Rosenstein resigned uh, before this allegedly devastating D-class happened. So Q was incorrect when he said that the D-class would initiate the resignation of Rosenstein. 
it's still bizarre to me, the number of ways that Q is just wrong. He makes a, a concrete mm -hmm. claim that proves false, and then still people are like, oh, yes, this is a good source of inside information. Well, yeah, because the way they look at it is they go, because Rod Rosenstein did resign. And so they just go, ah, 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 one piece, one piece true. Therefore, other part that didn't, wasn't true miscommunication like they they find a way to latch onto yeah. the one piece even if it's months later or weeks later yeah but it, here's the funny thing in uh july of 2018 months before that q drop uh redacted carter page fisa documents were declassified and released to the public but they weren't released by order of donald trump they were obtained through the freedom of information act lawsuit by the new york times and other publications so this is this is weird that the you know, the Mockingbird Media would be seeking out this information that that Q people think is going to sort of devastate the deep state. Right. Interestingly, uh, back on September tenth, two thousand eighteen, President Trump ordered law enforcement and intelligence officials to declassify documents related to the Russia investigation and other inquiries. Trump, however, eventually decided to not declassify that information and punted the issue to the DOJ Inspector General. Uh, the New York Times reported that intelligence officials had been pushing back at Trump's order, warning that sources and methods could be revealed, which, of course, means the deep state finally got to Trump. Yeah. So uh, here's how Trump justified going back on his declassification order in a pair of tweets on September 21st, 2018. I met with the DOJ concerning the declassification of various unredacted documents they agreed to release them, but stated that so doing may have perceived negative impact on the Russia probe. Also, key allies called to ask not to release. Uh, therefore, the inspector general has been asked to review these documents and on an expedited basis. I believe he will move quickly on this and hopefully <laughs> and hopefully other things which he is looking at in the end. I can always declassify if it proves necessary. Speed is very important to me and everyone. So. Yeah, he loves speed. Speed. Taking it, snorting it, right. drinking it. Keanu Reeves, speed. Great movie. I like Sandra Bullock in that movie. Sandra Bullock, well-built woman. <laughs> now, now, he says there that speed is important to him, but it's been nine months since that tweet, and there really hasn't been any big declass of Russia investigation-related documents. Uh, D-Class was also apparently used as a bargaining chip during the confirmation hearings of Justice Kavanaugh in QAnon World. Uh, a September 17th, 2018 Q-Drop said this. Panic in D.C. D's offering to kill sexual assault allegation versus Judge K in exchange for immediate pullback of D-Class. POTUS, Judge K will be confirmed regardless. Q. It's one of those things where he's like, they're just like adding a sort of like an extra layer of secret drama to uh, to whatever's going on in the news. Yeah, I, I like when Q does that, when he tells little stories of what are ha was supposedly happening behind closed doors that, yeah, you yeah. know, you, you know, there's a bunch about like Rod Rosenstein going to the president and being like, please, sir, like, <laughs> don't send me to Guantanamo. And like president's like, well, you better you better clean your ship up, Rod Rosenstein. <laughs> My God. In uh, February of 2019, as rumors started to swirl that Robert Mueller was wrapping up his investigation, uh, the people behind Q perhaps realized that the QAnon community would be disappointed that the Mueller investigation didn't actually lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. So uh, Q set up a post-Mueller sequence of events that promised that the D-class 
would actually happen after the Mueller report dropped. Here's what that Q drop said. Do not trust the fake news media. You are the majority. Mueller leads to D-class, leads to OIG, leads to truth, leads to justice. The Great Awakening. You are the news now. Q. So I was basically saying that uh, after the Mueller report uh, drops, then the D-class will happen. After the D-class, then some sort of inspector general report will reveal even more shocking wrongdoing. And then that's followed by truth and justice. It was, yeah. It's very, very vague. But presumably that means like the, the Great Awakening and military tribunals or whatever. In uh, QAnon world, uh, D-class is like Q's like ace in the hole. Like Trump can unleash the D-class at any time he wants to, but he's going to wait. He's going to do it strategically. This is exactly like waiting for Obama to do something yeah. for eight years. He's about to do the right thing, ladies and gentlemen. Gitmo's going to be closed. The uh, the wars are going to be over. So we can kind of see this attitude in a uh, June 27th, 2018 Q drop, which I personally think is one of like the best Q drops of all time, just because it's so, so dramatic. Here's what it says. If you continue to proceed down this dangerous path, only know that we are prepared. You should know this based on earlier drops. Re-Saudi Arabia, re-National Guard, re-Military Assets Activate U.S. Soil. The game is over when the public knows. The fight to keep the lights off is all that matters to you. You will fail. The American people are awake. You lost control. Sheep no more. You underestimated their resolve and their ability to free think away from the pipeline narrative. <laughs> I just see someone drifting away, you know. I'm free thoughting away. Uh, come, come closer to the ship. We won't be able to rescue you unless you're floating closer to the ship. I'm free thinking. I'm free thinking We will D-class. We will shine light. There is nowhere to hide. No amount of money, influence, or power can stop this. Our rights to secure and protect at all costs then become justified. We stand at the ready. Red wave. White squall. In God we trust. Q. One of the better drops, I think you're yeah, definitely right. One of the better, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Oh, oh my solid God. One. The fight to keep the lights off is all that matters to you is, it sounds like a description of my dad. Yeah. He's like, don't, you keep walking out of rooms <laughs> and you're, you're leaving the light on. You know how much I pay every month for electricity in this place? Now, when you went to bed last night, Jake, <laughs> I noticed that you left the basement lights on. In recent months, Q has still been promising that the D-Class is coming. The whole D-Class narrative got a huge boost when Trump gave Attorney General William Barr the authority to unilaterally declassify records on May 23rd, 2019. On that day, Q released a Q drop that implied that uh, the really good Carter Page FISA documents are on their way. Uh, here's what that Q drop said. Carter Page, public FISA, remainder are still under classification until today. Waterfall of proofs coming. Post D-Class. Q. Waterfall of proofs coming. Open your mouths real wide. <laughs> That's right. Now line it up. Now here comes the truth. <laughs> you filthy little piglets. <laughs> <laughs> now gargle that golden <laughs> truth. Right, gargle your mouth full of truths. Right. 
right. Patriots. <laughs> All right. There's gonna be a, a new. There's gonna be a new form of like ASMR, which is like Julian. Julian's voice, like just reading, you know, pr- pretend Q drops with like sexual connotations in them. Sexual? Oh, come on, man. We're just talking about truth. Golden, golden, flowing truth. <laughs> Frothy, uh, dark, <laughs> dark yellow. If you haven't drinking a lot of water. Asparagus of justice yeah. smells smells so sweet. White asparagus. Edit this all out, please. I, I thank you. Hundred percent won't, Jay. <laughs> I know your mother is listening. <laughs> Hello, by the way. I'm glad that you enjoyed that interview I did with Christian. Maybe now you'll stop saying that Travis is your favorite host. <laughs> um, I am so sorry I have drug you into this terrible, terrible <laughs> situation. <laughs> I will cancel your Patreon subscription. Q also asked why Trump didn't give the D-Class authorization to Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats. And here's what Q said. Why did POTUS circumvent DNI Coats, normal protocol for D-Class, and give authorization directly to AG Barr? Q. And, you know, they really weren't quite sure why this was. Maybe they're saying Dan Coats is, uh, is uh, dirty too. Maybe they're saying that, oh, because um, the... Um, you know, the attorney general is going to drop the hammer of justice. He needs all the documents. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, this is that this is that classic when somebody asks like, Q, like, why didn't you do it this way? Which seems like totally logical. And he's like, that's right. Why didn't I do it that way? <laughs> like, really, I think in QAnon, D-Class represents like the hope that somewhere within the federal government, there, there's just some document or like maybe a group of documents that will vindicate them. They don't know what this document is. They don't know what it says, but they do know that once it's revealed, that then all the doubters with their snarky little podcasts will finally be forced <laughs> to admit that Q was right the whole time. Well, and look, I the mean, only thing that would really prove them right is if they literally like executed Obama or Hillary. Yeah, because all the other stuff is contained in so many other belief systems right, and stuff. Right. And like, I love that every time like a pedo gets fucking outed, they're like, "See," and it's like, "Yeah, we all think pedophilia exists <laughs> and it's right. bad." And they've been arresting them Oh, oh, there's government corruption? Holy shit. Even if the D-class comes, you know what's going to happen is it's going to be like the memo and the fucking, you know, the first application. And the Q people will be like, oh, this is so, you know, I felt very similar. I know that the Mueller report had, you know, uh, you know, evidence of obstruction of justice and all this shit. But like I felt the same way about the Mueller report that it's that it was like, you know, the people who had been wait wanting the Mueller report yeah. to be a failure were like, see, total failure. It's gonna be so embarrassing. They're gonna and, like release like FBI logs for like ten years. It'll be like it'll be like, wait, I don't understand. I keep reading about how they convinced this guy Mohammed to stop doing graphic design in yeah. university <laughs> and start trying to build a pipe bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and then they arrested him the next day. This is this is um yeah uh, doesn't really fit any of the stories I've been telling myself. I mean, yeah, one silver lining could be is that if he does do, you know, does do some sort of sweeping massive declassification, that maybe there actually is a nugget of of something that totally unrelated. Oh, there's to gonna Q, be all kinds of amazing like, shit. Yeah. I want declass. Yeah. I legit want. Course, I would love to know what the uh, what these fucking intelligence agencies are up to. Yeah, I'm sure we discover all kinds of amazing shit. Yeah, and yeah. the definitely the focus uh, once we have all that information will probably not be on executing. Obama or Hillary. Yeah, definitely. It'll probably be on examining like the 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 sweeping powers that we've slowly given to the government and its and its intelligence agencies over time and how that's interfered with the democratic process on a fundamental level. He couldn't do it anyway because the execution of another leader of a of a, you know, uh competing political party would look so 
fascistic. I mean, it it yeah. it would look. I mean, even, you think they give a shit about that? They've been yeah, fantasizing I mean, their whole fucking lives about it. I guess they I just mean, are going to call that justice. I it's think, not going to happen anyways. Yeah, but yeah, but I think even and maybe I'm fucking giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I shouldn't. But I think even Donald Trump would say like. Eh, do I want to be known as the president who executed the leader of the opposing party He'd be while like, wearing a military cro- uniform? Cro- crooked and- Hillary. Crooked Hillary had a, a crooked neck after we hung her up there. Bad look. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Not very spring-like. Who knows? They imagine that, like, you know, after everyone sort of, like, realizes, like, all the horrifying things that, like, Hillary and Obama did, then everyone will be on board with this, like, basically fascistic sort of authoritarian executing of your political opponents, yeah. basically. But, of yeah. course, they, they, they overestimate pe- how much people, like, actually follow the news and give a shit, honestly. Yeah. Yep. Most people don't. No. Mo- most people d- don't care about... Most people just hang out on the underscore Donald until finally their family gets worried about them. Right. Yeah. That's or, what most people do well, for most, news. Or their family is also <laughs> on the Donald and they're sharing, you know, they're sharing memes back and forth. Well, they fucking, they, mm. they live their lives. They do their jobs. They go to the park. They uh, yeah, they read books. They watch Netflix and that they don't follow this, this bullshit at all. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's most people. Yeah, yeah. Most people read books. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Good luck with that one. All right. All right. Well, look, hey, man. And they listen to books. Classic yeah. libtard thinks people still read. <laughs> the Storm with Jake Rokotansky. I am going to read an excerpt from a uh, book uh, published in the future. Uh, the title is World War Q. And the chapter I'll be reading is called The Storm. And it opens with a quote. It is not light that we need, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. Frederick Douglass. When the storm came, it was swift. It was clean. It was methodical. The efficiency surprised even the most staunch supporters, frightening them even. Those who had chosen to remain in the dark dug their heels even further into the mud until at last, There was no ground left to support them. Some would refer to it as the Great Awakening, while others claimed it was an act of divine intervention. But one thing was proved beyond a doubt. America, as we knew it, was about to change forever. On December 17th, 2019, at 5.17 p.m. Eastern Standard Time... Everything ends with 17. (laughs) What a piece of shit. Oh, man. Come on. Come on. This is good. On December 17th, 2019, at 517 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, President Donald Trump authorized a mass declassification of intelligence documents related to the surveillance of his presidential campaign. At first... The media response was surprisingly slow. One might assume a glimpse into the inner workings of the government's secret FISA courts would excite journalists, but it became increasingly apparent that no one in the press corps knew how to report on it. At the time, over 1,200 documents were spreading like wildfire via the popular social media platform Twitter, so much so that the site went down for approximately three to four hours. It would be discovered later that the site's moderators were attempting to scrub anything related to D-Class, but it was useless. When the site regained functionality late into the evening, it was flooded with memes and graphics highlighting the most damning elements of the newly declassified files. 
Previously, unseen emails from former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton had been preserved on her top aide's husband's laptop, which had been placed into evidence for an unrelated offense. The document showed the coordination of the assassination of a young DNC staffer, Seth Rich, who was proved to be the real source of the now infamous DNC hacks. It was discovered that Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, had been communicating with two known MS-13 members who had been paid $20,000 to carry out the attack. The charges had been filed by the NYPD, but had been suppressed by partisan law enforcement officials. This fact, along with the revelation that the FISA warrants used to surveil the Trump campaign had been obtained using only unverified sources and targeted media leaks, decimated what was left of the Democratic establishment. At first, the media railed against the newfound information. They maintained for 72 hours that the documents were forged in an effort to draw focus away from the impeachment inquiry opened on the president by House Democrats. But once documents began to surface implicating top-ranking journalists who knowingly pushed false information to the American public, the nightly reporting quickly devolved into a bitter and ugly battle of arguing and finger-pointing. And then the hammer dropped. On Monday, December 20th, 2019, DOJ watchdog Michael Horowitz released an 800-page scathing report on the conduct of top brass at the FBI at the heart of the Russian investigation. Andrew McCabe, along with special agents Peter Stroke and Lisa Page, had conspired, along with members of the press, to launch what they knew to be a bogus investigation into then-presidential candidate Donald Trump. The report even went on to imply that former Attorney General Loretta Lynch played a role in the scandal, looking the other way in exchange for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. To many's disappointment, former FBI Director James Comey was found innocent of any wrongdoing. The report found that he was completely unaware of the actions of his employees, mostly due to frequent camping trips and gross incompetence. Nevertheless, there was now undeniable evidence that top law enforcement officials had coordinated with various news organizations to keep the American public in the dark. Top MSNBC reporter Rachel Maddow was famously arrested during a live broadcast. She was subsequently <laughs> charged with conspiracy and sedition and sentenced to 25 years in prison. This was the beginning of what later would become known as the Mockingbird Massacre. Hundreds of journalists were indicted on charges of conspiring with leaders in the Democratic Party to advance the now proven Russian hoax. Online pundits who had made millions selling books about the supposed proof of Donald Trump's collusion faced massive class action lawsuits and were ordered to pay back every single cent of revenue that they had received. Because of the ensuing gag orders, many of them were forbidden from posting on popular platforms such as Twitter decimating their brands and businesses and plunging them into decades of debt. One station, however, Fox News, owned by <laughs> megacorporation Disney, ran a 24-7 victory lap as they had been the only organization who had gotten it right. Reporters Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson were both awarded the highest honors for exceptional reporting and enjoyed fancy dinners and galas at the White House with the world's top leaders. They continued to draw thousands of new viewers every night as they reported on each new story as it broke, and break they did. On December 21st, just four days after what's now known as D-Day, Utah prosecutor John Huber unsealed hundreds of indictments revolving around the corrupt Clinton Foundation. The allegations were grim. The foundation had been using government loopholes to create untraceable slush funds and were using them to fund wide-reaching human trafficking organizations for decades. Contained in the case files was a video of Hillary Clinton and top aide Huma Abedin violently attacking a child. The video was far too gruesome to be shown on television, even for the primetime Fox News programs. Popular conspiracy theorist YouTuber Jordan Sather took it upon himself to host the video on his website so America could learn the horrible truth. Subsequently, he garnished millions of followers and donations began pouring into his crowdfunding campaigns. 
Shortly after the report dropped, videos surfaced of former Clinton campaign manager John Podesta's home being raided, and of him being let out, kicking and screaming, as large crowds of people stood outside cheering for his arrest. He was charged with his role in the murder of Seth Rich, along with dozens of human rights violations, and with the help of testimony from former DNC chair Donna Brazil, Podesta was sentenced to life in prison without parole. The following day, a parade was held in Washington, D.C. to honor the slain young staffer and celebrate the fact that his murderers had finally been brought to justice. News broke that President Trump had planned an emergency State of the Union. The event was broadcast from the lawn of the White House, and in an amazing spectacle, the president revealed that deceased Kennedy family member John F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> was in fact alive and had been living in disguise for the last 30 years. Kennedy then produced a signed arrest warrant for Hillary Clinton. The charges were as follows. Human trafficking, 52 counts of premeditated murder, conspiracy to defraud the United States, treason regarding both her meddling in the 2016 election and for Kremlin-traced funds donated to the Clinton Foundation amidst the sale of a 20% stake in American uranium, and a dozen others. To the delight of the attending audience, JFK Jr. then boasted that he himself would hand-deliver the warrant to Clinton. Later that evening, reports began to spread on Twitter that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton had committed suicide in their Chappaqua home. It was reported that as SWAT teams approached, Hillary and her husband had taken cyanide pills before Hillary used a revolver to shoot Bill and then herself. A cloud hung over America that evening. Democrat supporters were in a state of absolute shock. There were mass reports of people checking themselves into local mental institutions, so stricken with grief they were unable to complete even the most menial of tasks. In an effort to sow unity, President Donald Trump tapped popular YouTube philosopher Jordan Peterson to be the SCS, or Storm Communications Secretary. <laughs> Peterson would allocate taxpayer funds to open and operate community outreach centers where bewildered liberals could attend counseling free of charge. The program proved to be a massive success, as many from the online communities of 4chan, 8chan, Vote, and Gab eagerly volunteered to help former Democrats process the terrifying truth. A dam had broken. People were finally beginning to grasp the magnitude of the lies they'd been sold for decades. And with each day, new indictments were becoming unsealed. As it turned out, all of the cases Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller had referred to the SDNY involved corruption amongst prominent Democrats, not Republicans, as many had assumed. He had cut a deal with President Trump during an interview on May 16, 2017, that if his special investigation discovered any corruption on the part of the Democrats, he would share it, along with his findings on Russia. A full week after D-Day, the news began to break. Former President Barack Obama had been apprehended in Kenya and was being extradited <laughs> to the United States. He had been charged with treason, funding foreign terrorism, conspiracy to defraud a U.S. election, and perjury for lying about his birth certificate. <laughs> Military tribunals were broadcast live on television. Violent protests were staged outside courthouses and Capitol buildings, even on the lawn of the White House, but it made little difference. The jury returned with a verdict in just under an hour guilty on all charges. The penalty? Death by public hanging. On January 2nd, 2020, gallows were constructed at Guantanamo Bay, and President Obama was led, handcuffed, up to the scaffolding. Millions watched as the noose was placed around his neck, the death warrant was read, and a masked man stepped forward and pulled a large lever, sending the condemned to his certain death. But something amazing happened. The moment the lever had been pulled, a single shot had rung out from the distance. The rope had snapped, and a relieved Barack Obama had landed on the dirt beneath the scaffolding, unharmed. Everyone in attendance began to swivel their heads around, searching frantically for the origin of the gunshot. More shots rang out. 
Men with rifles and hatchets and bow and arrows began streaming into the execution site, tactically taking out guards as they surrounded the former president and rushed him to safety. Once they had gained control of the area, a seemingly short man, wearing a navy blue blazer, made his way through a swarm of armed freedom fighters. As he got closer to the edge of the crowd, one could see he was wearing thick glasses and had a mop of tangled gray hair atop his otherwise bald head. As he pushed through... As he pushed through to the front line, it became clear he was holding an ornate Soviet-era rifle. Come on, you apes. You want to live forever? He shouted to his men. They cheered as they stormed the prison, weapons raised, ready to die for their leader, Bernard Sanders. Unbeknownst to military officials, Sanders and his followers had access to Guantanamo's infrastructure blueprints and had been carefully planning an ambush involving the tunnel systems beneath the prison. The battle for Guantanamo would be written about for decades after, often described often describes the chaos after the storm. While some historians continue to argue over various details, like whether Sanders wore a bird on his shoulders while he fought, or if it's true that President Trump did indeed soil himself upon seeing Sanders and his army storm Guantanamo on that fateful day, Mm -hmm. most historians can agree on one thing. A new resistance began that day, one without hashtags and t-shirts and fluffy pink hats, but instead with sacrifice, bloodshed, and honor. Chapter two. The real resistance to be continued. Okay, I was like, <laughs> are we gonna go into? <laughs> hey, man, that's beautiful. Fascinating book. Yeah, 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 incredible story. Yeah, and I guess that would be the end of people saying Bernie Sanders is racist. <laughs> yeah, you know, he shot, he fired that shot. I'm assuming. Well, one of the one of the freedom fighters did. He often looks like he's squinting as if down the barrel of a <laughs> rifle. Yeah, but he he was <laughs> either that or he's just so fucking old. The, yeah, I'm sure that the three of us are probably in that resistance. Uh, mm, I th- think um, guerrilla fighters. Travis was probably the guy wearing um, the hood on the <laughs> yeah yeah on yeah, the scaffold. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely be executed in the first wave. So, I, <laughs> so is there anything that I missed? I mean, is that I tried to hit every I, single thing everything, that, that yeah, the Anons are like, hoping? Yeah, think about yeah. Like, think about like uh, about Obama claiming Kenyan citizenship to escape. That's part of QAnon too. They that's say amazing. that they say that say yeah. that. Obama's going to flee to Kenya and says like, no, I am a Kenyan citizen, so you can't get me, basically. Yeah. yeah. That's like a huge tenant of the QAnon sort yeah. of mythos. Yeah. I do love just your consistent yep. writing somehow getting Bernie up in there. Yeah, like, yeah. fuck yeah. Completely unrelated but, shit. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It really makes me think it's like, it's like they could, if someone has some resources, a good a dramatic movie could be made of this whole yeah. fictional universe. Oh, yeah. I totally. mean, it's horrifying like this. Of course. Because you, you hear some of it, like you were saying, you, pro- you, you said you were writing it and you kind of like halfway through, you're like, Jesus. Because it, it's, if you are face to face with the reality of what these people want, it's fucking awful. Yeah. It's the kind of story that kicks off like years of darkness yeah, and yeah. turmoil in any country. That's the thing. Yeah, I legit yeah. had like, I was telling the guys earlier, I had like a legit panic attack like while yeah. while writing it because... It was it was just plausible enough to mm-hmm. to to imagine that you know if they really wanted to go that way, there's not too much we could do to stop it. Except just learn how to shoot so well that you can you can hit a little rope. Yeah, well, perfectly you got, one shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I knew that you had a Prince of Thieves reference in there. <laughs> yeah, that's I what could it is. tell. I was like, I feel like I've seen this before when I was a kid <laughs> in like, a movie with yeah, Kevin Costner. 
You've been listening to the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Our Twitters are at QAnon Anonymous, at Travis underscore view, at Julian Field, and at Real Rockatansky. We don't run any advertising on the show, mostly because we just don't like corporations telling us what to do. Uh, so instead of all that shit, uh, we use a straightforward $5 monthly subscription system. And for that amount, you get access to a second weekly episode alongside all of the episodes that we've already recorded. So please, uh, if, if you feel so inclined, uh, visit patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and uh, please support us. Uh, it allows us to be self-sustainable. And for that, we are so, so grateful. So thank you. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. Why would Kerry be over there talking to Iranian leaders? Obviously because they want to put into effect some kind of plan to thwart what Trump is doing. And Trump is trying to broker peace. What do they want? They want war. They want Iran to continue building nuclear weapons and eventually be able to start World War III so they can get rid of Russia, they can get rid of the United States, and they can get rid of all international borders and have their big happy world global government. That's, that's the long-term plan of people like Kerry and Obama. They're trying to get this done before they go to prison, by the way. They are all going to prison. Uh, every single one of them is going to go to prison. And if you think they're going to be going to prison in a civilian setting, I would be willing to bet you a package of cookies. Most of them are going to military tribunals, and a lot of them are going to be facing the death penalty.